The strength of this church, as you know, is its membership, uh, not its buildings, though we have such a beautiful campus. The strength is the quality of its people, not the least of which is Ann Joyner. And I saw Ann earlier, but I don't know where it, she may have sat. Ann, are you here? Oh, there we go. We, oh, Ann, I'm sorry. There you go. My eyes aren't so good. But, but uh, I've known Ann for many, many years, as have many of you, and she's a wonderful person. And um, we introduced a few weeks ago this uh, unusual series, Super Duper Bible Verses. And by the way, the person who came up with this extraordinary title deserves a raise. Let me tell you, it was me. Super duper Bible verses, and I invited you to tell me what your favorite verses are or verses that you feel need clarification, and thank you for responding. I have a lot of them, and I intend to get to all of them. I'm trying to do them generally in the order in which you have sent them to me, so please continue to do that. You can email it to me or just write it down on a piece of paper, and we'll get to it. So the verse, verse says, I'd like for us to look to tonight, were submitted to me by wonderful Ann Joyner. And she said, I was a young teenager when I came to the Lord. For some reason, Mark 15, 37 and 38 made a huge impact on my young life and has stayed with me through the years. I, I, and I confess to you, I didn't know what those verses said until I looked it up. They're marvelous. And so I thank you for um, recommending we take a closer look at those verses. And that's what we're going to do tonight. Now, whenever you look to a verse of Scripture, you're on dangerous ground unless you examine the context in which you find it. So let me just tell you, the context in which these verses are found has to do with crucifixion. It's a crucifixion text, namely the crucifixion of Jesus, the very Son of God. He died, you know. And you wonder, how could this be? How could God die? He can't. By definition, God cannot die. He's not subject to it. Well, that is unless he condescended and in some way reduced himself. Uh, it's not possible for God to die unless in some way he set aside his divine privileges and took on flesh and became us. Because this flesh is subject to death and deterioration and decay. That's what happened in the person of Jesus. Uh, it's a simple message. God became man to suffer and die for the sins of humankind. Jesus did this, and Mark chapter 15 tells us all about it. And uh, at the conclusion of the manifold uh, trials and whipping and beating and mockery and crucifixion of Jesus, the Son of God, we now come to Anne's verse. Uh, Mark, now you know the context. So now we get to Mark 15, Verse 37, here's what it says. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Uh, the Greek word for loud is the word megalane. And the Greek word for cry is the word phonane. If you put them together, you get megalane phonane or megaphone. That's where we got our word, megaphone, from these two Greek words. It's not a Greek class. I only belabor the point because I want you to know the uh, Son of God who is being crucified somehow managed to utter, uh, utter uh, expel a loud
voice, uh, the likes of a megaphone. Now, this is extraordinary because the victim of crucifixion uh, would be gasping for air, could barely inhale and exhale, let alone find the energy and the wind to utter anything, let alone a megaphone-like cry. But the Lord Jesus did. Because though he took the form of man, he never ceased to be almighty God. And Jesus, therefore, was able uh, shortly before his death to utter a loud cry. And folks, uh, this loud cry was not the last gasp of a victim. It was the victory cry of a victor. It was not the cry of defeat, but a victory. A victory over sin and victory over Satan and victory over death. Now Mark here, uh, the gospel writer, does not tell us what it was that the Lord specifically uttered. But John, in his parallel account, does. It is recorded, in fact, in John 19, verse 30, this is what the Lord uttered. One word, tetelestai. To tell us that. Now, I'm sorry about the, the Greek, but it's just magnificent if you think about it. What in the world does that mean? Well, it's one word in the Greek, but when it comes across into our language, it's three words. To tell us thy means it is what? It is finished or paid how much? In full. That's what the word to tell us means. Archaeologists have found business documents dating from the very time of the crucifixion and showing that when a debtor paid off his or her debt, they wrote across the uh, invoice this one word, to telestai. It means you're no longer a debtor to any creditor. It means your debt has been uh, paid in full it is finished. Your indebtedness is finished. That's what the word means. And so with regard to the Lord's loud utterance of this word from the cross, what did he mean when he said it is finished? What is finished? What is paid in full? Well, you know the answer, but I hope you never get tired of hearing it repeated. Folks, it's our debt, the debt we owe a holy God due to our sin. He's right to hold us accountable for it. There are no mitigating circumstances. We have no defense. We sinned because we're sinners. And we chose to sin against his holy law. His character has been offended. And God has every right to hold us accountable for it. But what Jesus did paid the debt. It is finished paid in full. So Jesus loudly proclaimed that what was necessary to save us from sin has been fully accomplished. I'm glad I came tonight because life's getting complicated and I'm getting distracted and I just want to remember I'm free because the Son has set me free. No matter what else may happen, 
I do not fear death, nor do I fear standing before Almighty God. In fact, I look forward to it. Because I know what Jesus did took care of everything I would otherwise owe and not be able to pay Almighty God. To tell us it is finished, paid in full. The Father, you see, sent the Son on a mission. And the Son declared that the mission has been accomplished. It is finished, Father. You know, a victim of crucifixion may have been able to cry out, I am finished. But Jesus, the victor, cried out, it is finished. He's not finished. Good night up from the grave he arose. Death didn't finish him. He finished it. That's why you and I can live forever. Now that's verse 1 of what Anne suggested. Verse 37. How am I doing so far? Okay, so far. All right, good, good. I'm trying, Anne. I'm trying. <laughs> now listen to this next one. And you're getting two verses tonight because you're a special lady. So here's the next verse, uh, Mark 15, 38. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Folks, in Jesus' day, a temple stood on a mount. You have to use your imagination because there's another structure on it today. It's beautiful architecturally. It's ugly, ideologically. It's called the Dome of the Rock. It's the third holiest site in Islam. It's a golden domed uh, structure. It's on the site of the first temple that stood there. That one was built by Solomon. It was destroyed. The second temple was refurbished and expanded by crazed King Herod. It's called the second temple. It stood at the time of King Jesus. When he went up to the temple precincts, it was this second temple expanded by Herod that existed in that particular day. And here is a model of it. Perhaps you've seen this sort of thing. Please imagine it. It's marble. And uh, there would be gold all around it. It's on an elevated position in Jerusalem. People, therefore, coming from any direction would see it from afar. They'd see the sun shining off the marble and the gold. Their hearts would begin to stir up. In fact, pilgrims to the temple in Jerusalem were so moved and were moved by God to write psalms. They're called the Songs of Ascent. They're Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. When the pilgrims were going up to this temple in Jerusalem, they sang along the way. And if you want to know what they sang, there it is, recorded for us. In Psalm 113 to a, uh, Psalm 118, beautiful kind of uh, structure that existed in that particular day, in the day of Jesus. Now, the temple which God ordained to stand on this site had two rooms, and uh, they kind of looked like this. The one on the right was called the holy place. There's a curtain separating it from the smaller room on the left called the holy of holies. Only priests could go into the holy place on the right. It contained certain temple furnishings, the likes of which you see there, the most recognizable being the menorah or candelabra. And only one of the priests, the high priest, only he could go into the 
holy of holies beyond the veil, beyond the curtain. And he was only to enter into it one time a year on a designated day called the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. He couldn't just go in without first atoning for his own sin. So there would be repetitive cleansings. And then he'd have to go in. He couldn't go through except he brought blood with him. And he would apply the blood to the furnishings in this second room, the Holy of Holies. In fact, it was such a sacred and holy, solemn occasion that uh, on this, the hem of the priest's long garment would be tied bells so that the people gathered outside. See, he was mediating for them uh, forgiveness. He was beseeching God to atone, cover their sins. And so as long as they heard uh, the priest doing his priestly work in there, they could hear the jingling of the bells. They knew he was still alive, and at this point God had not refused his ministrations on their behalf. But if suddenly they ceased to hear the bells, they would be in a panic. Maybe God struck him dead because our sin is so great that he will not atone for it. And he actually had a rope tied around his ankles so that if the bells stopped, you could pull him out by the rope because no one, remember, is allowed to go in to the Holy of Holies except the high priest on this day. So this is an important kind of a, kind of a place. And you see this veil or curtain which separated one room uh, from the other. In the Holy of Holies, the second room uh, was positioned this, the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. That's the mercy seat on top. He would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat on behalf of the people. It stood in the center of the Holy of Holies. But for the intercessory work of the high priest on Yom Kippur, the people would be kept from contact with a merciful God. The only means of making contact with the mercy of Almighty God was through the mediatorial work of the high priest who applied blood to the mercy seat. Now the veil or the curtain which separated the two rooms was quite beautiful, uh, uh, but its message was ugly. Really, its message was keep out. Keep your distance. Here's what its message was. Access denied. You couldn't get to the mercy seat. Only the designated high priest and he only one time a year. And so the curtain which blocked access to the Holy of Holies served as a continual reminder of the sinner's separation from God's holy presence. It was a barrier. It appeared beautiful, but it had a terrible message. Keep your distance. Stay away. Don't get too close to holy God. And so the veil hung in front of the mercy seat. It was a wall of separation between the holy place and the holy of holies. Here's another depiction of it, as you can see. Here it's labeled the curtain divider, holy of holies, there on the left, uh, in which was housed the ark of the covenant. 
Exodus chapter 26, verse 31, tells us this about the construction of this curtain. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. It shall be made with cherubim, angels, the work of a skillful workman. Jewish writers tell us that the curtain probably was 60 feet long, 20 feet wide, and woven to the thickness of a man's hand. In other words, it would require approximately 300 men to lift it up and take it down. This doesn't give you the sense of that, but that's probably accurate. Now, folks, such a curtain could never have been torn in two by the weak hands of man. Only God could tear a curtain like that. That's why the text we're reading tells us that the curtain was torn, notice, from top to bottom, torn from above by Almighty God. It was not the work of man. Man had no capacity to undo the separation between him and a holy God. The only access to the mercy seat had to be provided by the grace and initiative of God himself. Don't take lightly the fact that the text says the tearing was from top to bottom. It wasn't from bottom to top. We would just love that. Then we would take credit for it. Look at us. We got it together. No, we don't. This was done by the mercy of Almighty God. Now, folks, while this happened at the very moment, Something else was happening not far from the location of this temple. The very Son of God breathed his last. That's what the first verse said. They coincided not by the working of the stars, <laughs> but by the predetermined plan of Almighty God. The two events took place at exactly the same time. And there was darkness over the land. Mark tells us this. And Matthew, in his account, tells us there was also at this time a great earthquake. And also the resurrection of many saints who had fallen asleep. In other words, this is no ordinary time. It's an extraordinary event. God did something so marvelous that it was accompanied by miraculous signs. And what is the marvelous thing that God, in fact, did at that time? Folks, he removed the barrier between himself and us. The barrier between holy God and sinful man was removed. Access to God's presence was now made open to all. When Jesus died, the barrier to God's mercy was entirely removed. Faith now can give anyone access to the mercy of Almighty God. I don't need a Jewish high priest because I have the ultimate Jewish high priest, Jesus, who suffered and died for my sins. I don't need to wait for the Day of Atonement one day a year. I can charge into the holy place based upon the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is not my opinion. This is what the writer of Hebrews tells us. Take a look at it. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place 
by the blood of Jesus. Can you see how you can't really get the full grasp of the New Testament unless you spend some time at least in the Old Testament? You're not going to get Hebrews unless you, unless you read uh, the Old Testament. Now, we read about in the Old Testament this barrier and this division and this separation and this limited access, keeping people from the Holy of Holies. And now we're reading in Hebrews because of the death, burial, and resurrection of the ultimate high priest Jesus. Now we're reading... Therefore, brethren, this is addressing Christians only. This is only for believers here. Since we have confidence to enter the holy place, how? By the blood of Jesus, not by Judaism, <laughs> not by Islam, not by Buddhism, not by membership in a Southern Baptist church, not by good deeds, not by merits, not by promises, not by resolutions, not by fasting, not by beating. We have confidence, we, brethren, believers, have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. And the text goes on to say in verse 20, uh, this, by a new and living way which he, Jesus, inaugurated for us through the veil. Can you see how it's referring back to the veil in the Old Testament? Through the veil, that is his flesh. Verse 21, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. I don't need a human descendant of Aaron who's just as needy and sinful as I am. We have a far better high priest. We have the sinless Lord Jesus who made the way for us. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, what do we do? Well, here's what it says in verse 22. Let us, remember the us is not people in general. The us here in the context are believers only. This is for believers. Let us draw near with a sincere heart. This is how we are to draw near. We can draw near. Do it this way. With a sincere heart. How? In full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I mentioned the manifold washings, ceremonial washings. The high priest had to go through before he could gain, gain entrance to the Holy of Holies. This is sort of a parallel of that. And folks, we've been washed in the blood of Jesus. We've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, you see. Therefore, this grand, is it an invitation or a commandment? I don't know. Uh, it, it, I think it's both. Let us draw near. Therefore, since all this has been taken care of by the great high priest Jesus, let us draw near. What an invitation. We don't have to come into God's presence any longer trembling or doubtful. No, we can come boldly as to a father. Why? Uh, because we know God is not going to give us justice. He's not going to give us what we deserve. We know he's going to give us mercy. What did he do with his justice? He poured it out on the very shoulders of the sinless Lord Jesus in our place. And all that's left now. For those of us who by faith have accepted Jesus as our Savior, all that's left is for God to pour out not his wrath, his mercy. We have access now to the mercy seat. Don't you see it? We'll not be judged because Jesus has been judged for us. That is to say, unto eternity. 
So let us draw near, the text says. This is God's grand invitation given only to Christians. It's an invitation uh, not to be saved. It's an invitation to those who are already saved. If you are not saved yet by the blood of Jesus, can you see what you're missing? You have, um, you, you have the uh, message, keep your distance. You're being told you have, you have no access to the mercy seat. This is in case you're wondering, why should I accept Jesus? Because it's he who's given us access to the mercy of Almighty God. I'd be pleased to chat with you. Soon we'll end in a few minutes. Why don't you stick around? I'd be pleased to chat with you. But this is not an invitation. This one is not a salvation invitation. No, no, no. This is not an invitation to be saved. This is an invitation to those who already uh, are. Draw near is what we're told to do in full assurance of faith, not works. So you say, oh, my works, oh, God, my works as a Christian have fallen short. Well, sure they have. But that's never the basis by which you're being invited to draw near to him at all. It says in the full assurance of faith, not your own virtue, not your own good stuff, not your own personal sacrifice. No, no, draw near in full assurance of faith, not doubting, but believing that what Jesus did uh, takes care of all of our sin. To tell us that it is finished, paid in full. The priest would wash himself, as I mentioned regularly. Holy things were cleansed. Everything was sprinkled with blood. We've had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's what happened when Jesus suffered and died on our behalf. In the old days, these rituals in Old Testament times and beyond were all ritual. They were just external. They never got on the inside. Uh, they never changed anyone for good. But when you open your needy and sinful heart to Jesus, he came in, didn't he? And he filled you with his spirit. His spirit is the cleansing agent now. You've been... You are being and you shall ever more be clean on the inside. Remember, God tore the partition from the top down. You had nothing to do. You couldn't even reach up that high. It's God extending downward in mercy. It's not us reaching up to him in our so-called virtue and show of good deeds. Don't settle. Here's the point. Don't settle, my fellow Christians, for a Christian life distant from God. Don't do it. It's possible to be fully redeemed and yet distant from the Redeemer. Don't do it. Makes no sense. But I can tell you why you do it and why I do it. I know something about human nature because I are one. Many years ago, I pastored a church in Chicago, and uh, <clears throat> I got along pretty well, except for one man. I just don't, I never got the impression he liked me. It was a mystery to me. How could that be? I don't recall doing anything in particular wrong to him, but I assumed I may have. Well, then my time at that church ended, and I... I left and went elsewhere. 
And years later, they called me back uh, to preach at one of their anniversaries. I don't remember which one it was. So I was so pleased uh, and honored. I hopped on a plane from wherever I was. I guess Texas. I don't remember where I was then. I went back to Chicago and went back to the church. Man, it was such a blessing to see so many of the people I had known and grown together with and served with. Of course, some had been promoted to heaven. That's always the case. We rejoiced even in that. We were just hugging and doing all kinds of fun stuff and loving on each other. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw this man, the one I was pretty sure didn't like me. And so I did the godly thing. I avoided him as much as I could. I thought I'll just look away, and maybe if I don't, I'll look away. You know, he'll he'll go away. Well, nothing like that happened. He actually made tracks right to me. I thought, oh, brother, here we go. I, 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 I did not want to be close to him because I was certain he had something against me. But then in the course of uh, our interaction and in the way he greeted me and hugged on me, I realized I was wrong. I imagined it somehow. I, 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 I don't think the guy had anything against me at all but imagining that he did is what kept me from drawing near to him do you see where I'm getting at if you think God has ought against you you will not draw near to him you will avoid him but if you're a Christian and you still think God has something against you You're as foolish as I was with this man. Your perception is not accurate. Please do not give yourself that much credit. You're not a good judge of reality. You are imagining a response on God's part to you that he will never manifest. Like the man. God desires to make his approach, which is why it says in Scripture, draw near to God, and he will do what? Draw near to you. You see? Our drawing near to him does not repel him. It endears us to him, just like would be the case with any father and child. If the enemy has lost your soul for eternity, good. You gave him a black eye. His next best thing is to keep you from enjoying the God who saved you. And I fear that's what he succeeds in doing with many of us. The accuser of the brethren accuses the brethren of real or imagined infractions. And we do the rest. In light of all that, we persuade ourselves there is no way I could come into the holy place, to the mercy seat. But you don't understand. God tore the veil from top to bottom. It's wide open. If you're a Christian, don't let the enemy steal. He cannot steal your salvation, but he can take away the joy of your salvation. Here is the joy of salvation. When all is said and done, we are with Jesus forever. He knows you by name. He redeemed you with the blood of his son. He has a plan for you. 
He'll never forsake you. You bear his name, and he's happy about it. He's so invested in your life that he tells us he's going to complete the work which he began. In fact, he gives us a foreshadowing of the blissful days ahead. He says, I will present you one day before me, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's what the Father says. So, so I'm grateful, Anne Joyner, for you making this, these two verses, our suggested verses to tonight. It reminded me of what it is to have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, soon we'll take leave of one another. I'm going to get in my car and I'm going to have some conversation with Almighty God. I may say, first I usually say, this is what I usually do. I say, oh God, you did it again. Because I, 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 I what, would I ruin it for you if I told you there are a lot of Wednesday nights I don't want to come? Yeah, I just don't. For a few reasons. I know what I'm going to say. I already heard it. And the other reason is, uh, you, I'm not at it. You, you don't feel adequate for the task. You just don't. I, I don't care how old you are in the ministry. If ever you feel adequate for the task, you're in danger. I, so I don't. So uh, in many cases, I utter, it's, I, I guess it's a prayer. It's more like a plea. And the plea is, oh, God, would you help me? Would you be my supply tonight? Would you accomplish your purposes? Would you be glorified? And would you let your people be edified? That's what I usually pray. So then when it's all said and done, I'll get in my car. It's parked right out there for now, but in the next few weeks, we have to park in Canada or something. I don't know where. I'll get in the car, and I'm going to say, thank you, Lord. Once again, you proved yourself able and faithful, though I, we are not. And I'll pray. And then I'll say stuff like, oh, God, I wish I didn't say something. That always happens. Oh, why did I say that? Or, or I'll say, well, you know, I, I ran into someone and they're struggling. And, and, and I'll pray for different ones. And then I'll put all of you out of my mind because I'm tired. <laughs> I'm telling you. I'll just go home at the end of the day after, after that transaction, uh, about 15 minutes. Then I'm home. I'm done thinking of you. Because <laughs> you got to get up the next day and do it again, you see. So, so that's what I'll do. And I can't tell you how I look forward to the ride home. Even if I've said things I shouldn't have, even if I have offended some, it's not justified, but, but even if I have, I can still run to Jesus because... Uh, Ann Joyner's verses reminded me, he, he, he tore the veil from top to bottom. I am not limping into the uh, holy of holies and the mercy seat. I'm charging into the throne room of grace. Abba, Abba, Daddy, Daddy, here I am. Only a child can, can avoid formality and dignity and just charge into the throne room of grace. That's what happened when Jesus died and the veil was torn. I'm a Christian, but I want to enjoy the ride. I have personal access to Christ Jesus. Don't let the enemy tell you you don't. You do, for Jesus has paid it all. 
Thank you, thank you, Lord Jesus, for everything. Perish the thought that we would ever cease to talk about you, the gospel, the good news. It could be summed up in one word, access, access, unlimited access, even to sinful ones such as us, because of what you have done. Literally, with every ounce of your breath, you uttered this megaphone-like cry. It is finished. You are debtors, but I paid your debt in full. What's stamped across us is not damaged goods, but persons set free from the sin debt otherwise owed. I pray, oh God, that more than ever before, we would enjoy our free and gracious access to you, for you have provided it at great personal cost. This we pray with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen.